guys, welcome to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. I'm Kelly. I'm your wine explorer here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am chatting with people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for listening today. Hope you guys are doing well, taking care of yourselves, and drinking some good wine. Maybe even planning some future wine travels. If you're not, after today's episode, you're probably going to want to go to Oregon. So I got to sit down and chat with Will Hamilton of Violin Wine. He is out in Willamette Valley in Oregon, and I drink his wines a lot. Love the value that comes in these wines, and I tell everybody about it. So now, if you haven't heard, now you're hearing it from me that I love violin, and I think you will too. It's a really cool conversation to hear from somebody that has so much involvement in every step of the way from the grape to the bottle to your glass. Now, coming up on the calendar here in Atlanta, I have a few fun events that I'll be posting about on Instagram and sharing about through our newsletter, but we do have the return of the signature Cork in the Road event, the wine versus beer dinners and data collection for my ongoing study of different taste preferences in wine pairings and beer pairings. And I'll be working with Hop City here in Atlanta and the restaurant Boxcar on the West End. That event is on June 3rd. Go check out my Instagram to click on the link and grab your tickets. I also have an education class coming up at Deep Roots Market in Roswell, Georgia, where we'll be exploring some lesser-known grapes from California compared to more familiar grapes in California. So that'll be a fun one too. That one is on June 8th. So more details online. Check out the website. Let me know if you like the podcast. Let me know if you've had violin wine. And cheers to all of you. Take care. for being here today. It's an honor to have you on the show, a winemaker on the show. I always get excited about that. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, hopefully things are okay in your world. Wines are always on our rack here in Atlanta. The violin label is prominent in our household and you sign them sometimes. So your autograph is here as well. But I tell everyone that I can about your wines. I do feel like there's a little bit of a congratulations in order though. Did I see an anniversary on, on Instagram? We got engaged two years ago. So an engagement anniversary. Uh, that was an engagement anniversary. Uh, it's been a couple of tough, you know, 15 months or whatever. We were married for like half a year before that. And I'm just very fortunate to have Highland by my side. So we can get through all this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's been a weird couple of years, but we're, we're hanging in there. Family is important. And having that person that you can go through all yeah. that crazy stuff with is very important too. So congratulations. Engagement versus yeah. are fun. A good excuse to drink a margarita. Social media doesn't tell you all the details. I thought you were on a beach in Mexico. So there you go. Oh, God, no, no. Two years ago, we were there with the kids. That was the last time we were out of the country. So just thinking about that time. Amazing. Well, we can't go to Mexico, but we can geek out about your wines. And we drink a lot of your wines. And we have been since, gosh, meeting you in 2019, we came out to visit your place. And we've learned so much from you, not only through that visit, but also just learning about the wines being produced. And 
I know that you started violin in 2013, but I think people might be surprised to know that you've been working in Willamette Valley since 2005. That's the year I graduated high school. That's a long time. You've oh, been cool. working there. Yeah, I, uh, you know, have only worked in Oregon. So I have now, whatever that is, 17 vintages of Oregon winemaking going on. And that doesn't strike me any particular way other than that, you know, I think having the acute focus has allowed the brand to to do what it's doing. And that's kind of, you know, once that decision was made, it's given me an opportunity to have such like a full or thorough focus on what we're doing in a very small area of the world and trying to make, you know, specific distinctive examples of, of this area. You know, I was fortunate to work with professionals, you know, and I think there's no, I got, I graduated college in 04. So took a year, tried to get into the wine biz, followed my girlfriend at the time to DC, really didn't like working on that particular side at the time came out here the next year and you know now I've worked every vintage since and uh you know because of the folks I've worked with had access to working with some really uh high quality fruit and you know as I understood more about the process I think that's that's where my head is now um the production side like you said I, I practiced it for about a decade before I started the brand so yeah. I got a lot of experience knew kind of what I wanted to do and until I what I say like until I had an opinion about style you know, the skills were just there. Were you drinking Oregon wines while you were living in DC? Started to, um, place I worked was a high end restaurant outside of, um, where I went to college in this little place called Swanee, Tennessee. They had a decent little wine program, you know, uh, Cali Zen was still the thing. Like, you know, in the early aughts, that was like, and honestly, that's what I started drinking when I was 18, 19 was like, doing Zinfandel dinners at this restaurant where I was working in high school and learning about Bordeaux and stuff. And so, yeah, I just started to drink Pinot Noir and then also found that like I had some preference toward it. And so when I went to work with this importer in DC, you know, Burgundy was the thing. I mean, they had a big Bordeaux list and they were all over. It was a French only book, but they kind of had this pedestal where they were keeping Burgundy. And, uh, you know, that was like an aha kind of moment. Uh, but, you know, there was this this area and, and there were some high end restaurants in D.C. So, you know, having exposure to like some organ pinots and and I think everyone has this journey where, you know, if you have a Pinot Noir from Oregon that's on that, you know, 15 to 20 dollar price point, you can get a very nice wine. It's kind of a different overall category from the kind of wines that I'm making, I like to think. And so if you haven't had what we call more serious Pinot Noir, I think you, you might have the impression that they, they can't be as full or as complex or as uh, comparable to, you know, big or fine red wines. Um, and unfortunately, it's really expensive to learn that if you're looking at Burgundy. In Oregon, you can get in there for 30, 40, 50 bucks. Or like, I think with my WV, you get there. It's just like teeter-totters on that other category for price. So I was able to drink some of that stuff like the wines enough that I was intrigued about it. And Oregon was a place I held in high regard for different reasons. So, you know, when we got out of college, one of my friends was interested in going to law school out there. So we rented a house together and I was commuting. And uh, yeah, I was a ground, ground up guy, uh, kind of, you know, what I wanted to do, the idea of like a um, apprenticeship felt like Oregon was the place to do it. You know, it was small scale. They were making only these, you know, cool climate varieties, an unbelievably beautiful place, Portland, a city that, you know, had a lot of intrigue. 
And what has it been now? 22 years. <laughs> but you showed up there for a harvest at the time and having it be a small town. Really, it is a small town where a lot of people know each other. Do people welcome you? Is there camaraderie? Like My friendship with Ken and Erica began when they were making Walter Scott out of Evening Land. I went to work there to become a stagiaire. I, I had a job doing service work, but still had time off during harvest. And as like a student of the game and all of that, I wanted to go do something that we didn't do much of at Northwest Wine Company, where we did an awful lot. We were the biggest custom crush house in Oregon, which was barrel fermented white wine. Uh, and Evening Land, you know, they had Dominique Lafon. He was the consultant in 2011. Burgundy was an early vintage. It was very late in Oregon. So he actually came to the winery and he worked with us on racking some juices. And, oh, wow. you know, those kind of um, experiences were really important for my sense of style. So in 2012 at Evening Land, when I was up in Seven Springs Sunrise, walking the vineyard with my friend Ryan, who I still work with, who farmed that site for a long time, uh, that was my aha moment where it's like, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and it was, it, it had a lot to do with that conversation about and discovery of style um, and what making a state fruit from the vineyard was all about and how we were approaching that kind of winemaking, which was, you know, for the most part, more acute, a uh, little bit more specific than what I had been doing, which was an awful lot of everything. Worked with all the big tools, did a lot of different styles, some high end, some high vault, you know, that kind of mentality to really just focusing on what we were doing with our estate fruit, how we were farming it, and then having a style. And so I got to manage their white winemaking room, you know, but I came to them with a tremendous skill set. So it was more like, hey, we're expanding our business. Can you help us take care of this thing? And it just so happened that Walter Scott was in that room with us. The red wine room was a separate building at Evening Land. And so I got to know them well. And then when they invited me up to Walter Scott, uh, you know, we worked together on their wines and they let me produce my wines there and they helped me on the sorting line with my stuff. And then from there, and as it's been, I, I'm the only one that does any of the winemaking. So that's, it's more like an opportunity. I mean, that's the, the part that you're supposed to just have dialed in and you can focus on, you know, how, how you're doing it and why not, you know, how difficult it is to, you know, drive the forklift or run the press or those things, which matter an awful lot, but they shouldn't be our obstacles. They should be our, our tool set, you know? Right. And you had a lot of experience in that production side of things. You know, the technical skills that you were building, working with lots of different places and lots of different producers. And it makes me interested in how you think the knowledge from working with one vineyard transfers to other vineyards. I happen to think that what makes Oregon so exciting is that it can be so different a mile right. apart. So what is the knowledge that transfers style-wise, vineyard-wise, from place to place? You know, it's all about trust, comfort, all that stuff. I think what we often forget with the terroir discussion is that the human element is huge and none of this stuff happens accidentally. So, you know, the people who I work with, we have a technique, a vision, a style in terms of farming. And it's not the exact same thing on a per site basis. We have different, just something simple like density of vines, for example, is going to have a big impact on what we expect to get out of that site in any given year with respect to chemistry and style and all those things. Now, there, you often see older sites where they'll just totally trump 
all of these factors and the core kind of tone of the vineyard is, is always available in the wines, you know, you can always see it. So, I mean, I, I think for the most part, again, working with almost exclusively Eel Amity Hills sites, I do have an expectation that, you know, bloom phase is probably going to be a little later than the North Valley. And we can see that early in the growing season. And so we know kind of a better feeling for like when things are going to be ripe compared to others. Oregon is, it's basically gambling every single year. And <laughs> I guess that keeps the adventure for you. <laughs> you just don't know what's going to happen. We can have the most amazing growing season ever and something can change rapidly in September out of anyone's control. No climatologist will ever be able to anticipate some of this kind of stuff. And it always has an impact on the overall quality of the vintage. So the, the more that you, time you spend in vineyards and with people who are farming them and locally, you, you're always learning stuff. And it's like a lot of things, you know, the more you learn about them, the more you realize there is to learn. And so, you know, at some point I'm just sitting there being like, I'm so confused. I, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing anymore. You know, I, don't I know think we all have those moments, but I appreciate that you're honest about that. That makes me remember that you're human. And I like that. Well, it's just like, what are we doing here? And so, you know, I, I've made plenty of decisions kind of on luck, faith, whatever, uh, when it comes to letting things be the way they need to be. And sometimes not doing stuff is really hard or choosing to make a cuvee that, you know, doesn't feel like if, if people are going to, you know, react well to it. And, you know, then having the good reaction, you know, like the 18 Chardonnay is a great example, uh, which you've had. That is a wine, when I first opened it between, you know, it was bottled late January last year, between January and March. You know, right when COVID hit, they wanted us to do like, everybody wanted Instagram videos, you know, it's like, taste your wine, do a video. And I just <laughs> couldn't do it uh, because I'm like, what am I going to do? Tell everybody my wine tastes good. But you couldn't keep a poker face for that, could you? Oh, you were like, I mean, nope. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> no shit. That's how the winemaker feels. Like, uh, so anyway, and I made one, but I was just like, this wine is deeply offensive and I just wouldn't drink it. You know, it's, it's. <laughs> It's so thin and acidic and gross. For now, it's like, for now, I wouldn't drink this, but let's give this thing some time. For those of us that enjoy wines with high acid, which is an awful lot of people that are in the wine trade, uh, you know, wines like that, yeah, now that it's been 15 months, it's in a great place. I, a producer reached out to me today and said, hey, we did this blind because we were looking at wines from the valley to ass assess style for a new client that we're going to make wine for. And she just reached out to say how much she enjoyed the wine that it was like a stunner within the lineup. And, and this was a wine that, again, I retail at $25 and I'm sure they were comparing to wines that were more than $50. No issue, whatever. It's a serious style, you know, and some people would say, God, this is so thin, it's green and it's just underwhelming. I'm not offended at all to hear that from people. You know, I wouldn't so, say that. I don't know who's yeah, saying you that. You who's saying that? that? Who's saying that? Well, where are they? <laughs> I, 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 I do think that, you know, to, to your point, it's just one of those things where if you're building wines and they have integrity, you hope that they always have something to give. And I, I hope that my wines continue to give more yeah. instead of just continue to be okay. Um, and I don't think it's a huge percentage of wines out there like that. And, you know, there's a, a number of reasons why I think that they're built correctly to 
have a good trajectory, you know, and I do think of it that way, uh, which obviously all starts in the vineyard, et cetera. But anyway, I, I think that wine's pretty bulletproof. I, I don't think it's going anywhere for five years. I think if we accidentally open a bottle in 10, we'll be like, this wine is still giving a lot. And, um, you know, I don't have any proof on that, but that's that's what I'm hoping. So it doesn't bother me that in the first six months, the wine has offensive characteristics. Burgundy gets away with it all the time. People are waiting to drink those wines. If they open it up in the first six months, it's going to be austere, off-putting. The SO2 will be noticeable, aromatic, things like that. You know, I, I hope the wines are giving in their youth, but I, I do long-term want to get judged on on how the wines aid. So patience is a big part of winemaking. That's a skill you need for sure. I also think that this is exciting where you're at now because you started violin in 2013 and now you get to make all of those decisions. You get to have your own label. So tell me about the current portfolio and maybe how it evolved since those early days when you first started did you start with one wine two wines Do you, are you familiar with uh, there's a label called homaker have you heard of that i have not uh, eric homaker is the uh, husband of louisa ponzi uh, who is the daughter of Dick and Nancy Ponzi, who recently just sold to Bollinger, by the way. What? Uh, that was big Whoa. news in Morgan last week. Uh, oh. big, big prestige, you know, more one of the finest champagne houses. Anyway, um, he helped start the winemaker studio in Carlton, you know, really talented guy. Uh, but he has a brand called Homaker. It's not really what he, you know, it's not like his, his thing. He's a consulting winemaker and does some other stuff. And, you know, it's a blended Pinot Noir from four or five vineyard sites, and it's designed to be elegant, and this is what it is. We make a Pinot Noir every year. And I thought, yeah, that's probably what I would do, something like that, where I'd make 500 cases. And, of course, as soon as I had five different lots of Pinot Noir in barrel, and I had four barrels of this and five of this and six of that, I started looking at blends. And, of course, the first year I wasn't selling any wine, so I was, like, scrutinizing all this stuff. So, anyway, I made three Pinot Noirs. Uh, a vineyard designate from a site called Sunny Mountain, which I did for four years. I don't know if we would have tried 16. I might I've have never had that one. Nope. Mm -mm. No, I did that for four years. It was always a component in the WV, including in 17, uh, which is the last year I had it. Um, and then I've always done this, the old Amity Hills kind of reserve, whatever you want to call that, a barrel selection is usually how I refer to it, which at, at, for the first several years was my highest end cuvee. Um, Selling at what? What price point? uh 48 retail and that's why you are one of my favorites that wine oh, outpicked its think coverage that's my really friend expensive there are wines that are comparable in quality that are much more money but when we spend time in the marketplace uh you know it's more evident uh the price points that actually allow movement and access for a, a broader consumer base and so you know that's a growth phase mentality about offering value. And I always want to offer value. And I don't think even at $55 on the vineyard designates that that doesn't, those aren't good values for, for the quality of the wines. But, um, but yeah, so did that. And then I did a vineyard designate that was 45 and the WV 25. So the WVs finally moved up to 30 after seven years. Um, and then in 14, I added a vineyard called Clotus Oiseau that I did as a vineyard designate made the Eola Hills. 
15, I changed the Yola Hills to the gray label, which I've done ever since. And now as a Polk County designate, which is Southern Yola Hills. Uh, I mean, half of the Yola Hills are Yamhill County, half are Polk. And so I, I started doing this Polk County cuvee to again, be a little more acute because almost all my wines were Yola Hills anyway. So I wanted to kind of, you know, hone in my barrel selection. So it was really a blend of Justice Vineyard and Sojo, which I, I do both as vineyard designates. So uh, 2017 was the year I did the Rosé for the first time. My friend Adam Radke's little vineyard that I call First Man, you know, he wanted to do something with the lower field. It ripens really late. Uh, so the rest of the vineyard I would pick for Pinot Noir, and then he sold it to another guy a couple years. So we pressed that off and made Rosé in 17. Obviously, people have enjoyed that wine. So we've done that every year since. Uh, so we have two vineyard designates we do from his side. I do a vineyard designate, First Man Pinot, and then also this rosé that carry the different label. The rosé um, is fantastic. I just had the 2021. It is just awesome. I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, everybody's freaked out about the, um, at, you know, the exposure to smoke out here. And I think that's the best one I've ever done. Uh, and I'm... I'm trying to bottle all of my 20 Pinots and I think the Chardonnays are outstanding. Um, and there's a lot of people who chose not to produce wine. So I, I'm just really uh, encouraged when people say, I enjoyed drinking that wine. It was delicious. Thank you. And that's, that's all I need to hear. You know, I don't need to say, Oh, well, we ran some numbers and it has a blue, 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 blue. I'm like, was it delicious? Great. Yes, it was. Um, yes, it so we was. we do those. And then, you know, in 2018, I quit my day job, my most recent day job. And I hope I don't have to get another one. Uh, we'll see. And I said when I did that, that I would make white wine. So I did. Uh, and so I did two Chardonnays in 18, the one, the 18 WV, and then the Coast Range, which uh, happened to be a one-off because that producer who owns the site decided to keep it. Uh, and then in 19, I added Sojo, Chardonnay, and then also a high elevation Dundee Hills site called Black Walnut. So I have those two as vineyard designates and a Willamette Valley, which is a blend of the two. In addition, I did a Lumen Vineyard Pinot Noir because it was so outstanding in 19. So oddly enough, I actually bottled nine wines in January. Wow. And that's the most you've ever done. Yeah. And I, I don't really want to bottle more than that. Obviously, we see the nuance in our cellars and we appreciate it. And every wine, you know, I value on its own and I love to showcase that. But at some point as a brand, I think going to skew happy is confusing. And honestly, I, I think I can deliver on a couple different points uh, with what I have. The, the Pinot Noirs I, I want to make, they have to show enough distinction. Otherwise, it's like, why would I have eight vineyard designate wines if, you know, six of them, basically everyone's like, well, they kind of taste the same, you know? Um, and and this is true in Burgundy. Everyone will bottle these, you know, specifically, but, you know, they already have designation and price based on appellation, which we don't have. So it's not like, well, if I bottle Shea, I can automatically get 170 because it's a premier crew or whatever. No, it's open game, you know, so right. the quality has to speak for itself and they have to be, you know, so justice has more framework, a little bit more tannin, a bit more earth and kind of floral tone. Sojo is so perfumey and silky and elegant. Um, and I think they play well together, which is what the gray label is really all about. Um, but on their own, they, they have really distinctive textural differences that I think showcase, again, to your point, these are about three miles apart in the Hill of Hills. So. 
drastically different. To your earlier point that justice is lower yielding naturally, it does probably contribute to the concentration of tannin, the firmness of the wine, etc. So I'm trying to dial it back. However, uh, I've started to work with some new sites that are getting mature and I'm quite sure I will be vineyard designating them. And so it's, it's highly likely that I'll have to break my production into two bottlings, which I haven't done. So I can do some whites and a couple pinots and then maybe do a, you know, a run where I I do some of the smaller lots and stuff. Um, I try to keep that stuff really efficient. So, Well, what I love about this portfolio and the drastically different conditions that you're working with, it is telling me that you have a lot of partners as well when it comes to working with these different sites and working with these different vineyards. How do you work together? And do you take a lot of time to decide common values, common tastes? How do you decide who to work with? Yeah, it's a really good question. Some people say, hey, um, how did you decide to buy that fruit? And it's not even like that, you know. Obviously, I I have a preference for the Eola Hills, and I knew when I started the brand that that was going to be a part of the portfolio. Denny Peso owned Eola Springs. He was doing business with us at Evening Land. Uh, He was already doing a lot of business with Walter Scott. They bought a lot of fruit up there from Eola Springs. So that's been a relationship I've had in every year. He's the owner of Sojo. So in 15, they sold the Eola Springs Vineyard to Judy Jordan from California. And he had already planted Sojo. So we slowly have kind of moved in there. And now Walter Scott takes the most. I'm in there for almost three acres now. Uh, But this was a partner I've had in every vintage. So we're growing together. We obviously already have rapport as friends and colleagues and business partners, really, um, in terms of this concept of uh, what we want to achieve in quality first. And people who are farming and have partners with wineries who aren't producing their own wine, they, they have a little bit of a different mentality about the importance of that partnership. And, and that's kind of exclusively how I work now with folks who aren't vinifying fruit from their sites. Bethel Heights being the exception and my friendship with Ben Castile and their family and having made wine on the Justice Vineyard, which is where Walter Scott is located, is, is a big part of the reason. They, they don't need to sell that fruit and it's more for educational and, you know, collaboration reasons that we do it Um, and, you know, potentially market collaboration. But so they're very friendly to do that. Otherwise, you know, those partnerships have evolved through having clout in the industry and, you know, building my own kind of friendships and that sort of, um, you know, it's obviously a small community out here, but not everybody can just say, oh, I think I'm going to buy some Temperance Hill Vineyard, you know, that has to happen in a more organic way. And it has to happen, you know, again, there's people who are more willing to do business with violin now that I've shown some solvency in the marketplace than might have a while ago. But we always have people moving into Oregon who are willing to come in and pay above market rate for fruit to start brands. And it's really disrupted market pricing in a lot of times and has really shifted the mentality of growers. And the people I work with, you know, we all kind of have a understanding um, that we're doing this from the kind of a grassroots kind of understanding. And yeah, it's it's a mixture of all those things. Certainly, I'm not like, oh, I can't wait to go work with that vineyard. The owner's a total dick, you know? <laughs> no, you got to um, like them, I would think. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? So it's like, I don't have to do that and I won't. And so, you know, the, the partnership is, you know, it's really pure and it, it's never been more clear than after having this last year go on who the people are that are going to stand up and help each other. 
Wow. That's just a beautiful thing in a very dark time. I think we already knew, but it's still, you know, really encouraging. And of course, I'm still riding a little bit of debt in that regard. And we know there's revenue and revenue has been disrupted at times. And we still have to turn wine bottles into dollars or else none of the other stuff happens. No, no, that is, that is still the end game for sure. And I'm thinking now, you are still very hands-on with your production. I see pictures of you and I, I love it. You're like in the tank with in the grape juice and it's fantastic. And I think it's just a reminder that you are making a lot of your own decisions now for what's in that bottle. And I always appreciate that. I like to know that you are there making those decisions in the tank, producing the wine. Well, and like I said, I relish the opportunity. It, it shouldn't ever be one of those things where it's so hard. You know, it's just like, it is hard. It's not supposed to be easy. It's an opportunity, not a chore. And, um, you know, having managed bigger facility and kind of cutting my teeth that way, where I was running teams of production and having to be accountable for work being done that I wasn't executing personally, while also having the skills to do the execution personally. And so now it's very simplistic what I do. Um, And so the QC is happening as I'm doing the work. And um, consequently, I don't have to do anywhere near the amount of analysis that we would have run on a bigger scale because I have familiarity with the sites, with the fruit and the fermentations, you know, if they're behaving, I don't necessarily need to see how much the sugars dropped in the last six hours to know that this fermentation is active, healthy, et cetera. And, um, and some of those decisions you start to do quite naturally, but again, we're, we're not dogmatic, so reacting is basically the name of the game and trying to support. And so, um, no, nobody messes with my vino except for me. I mean, I, I joke that I don't even really like people to look at my barrels. You know, it's like, just don't even look at that. I'm serious, though. Because, uh, like, awesome. even little things like how I like to top, I'm, I'm fanatic about the particulars of, of the way that I do it. So it, it means that I have full accountability. Well, now I feel lucky that we got to see the crush pad that you let us in. You let us see the tanks. We tasted 18 sojo out of barrel, right? Yeah, we did. We got barrel tasting. So you let us see your barrel. So thank you so no, much I, for that. Pleasure to be able to do that stuff. I, I only joke. Obviously, like I, I take it very, very seriously. And it's because I've spent a lot of time practicing that I feel comfortable and confident doing it that way. And I feel really, um, you know, co- again, confident in my methods. But, you know, the burden is real now that I'm going to be producing almost 2000 cases this year. Um, wow. I mean, we'll see how vineyard yields come in, but like the goal on paper looks close to 2K at about 350 Chardonnay and roughly 1600 Pinot. And, uh, you know, I'm prepared for it. I have a plan, but um, it's still like all of a sudden when you realize it's that many more tanks to manage, it's that many more barrels to manage, it's that much more analysis to think about. Uh, the time adds up, but I have some more partners in, in wholesale distribution now, which is, you know, hopefully going to help with the sales movement so that, you know, other than I still host my appointments personally, but I had to give up doing my wholesale sales in Oregon and that has alleviated a lot of time, which should be used for direct sales and for winemaking and work in the vineyard. So that's kind of where my business is transitioning. I probably need somebody to do marketing and sales and all the stuff that I'm not as good at so I can spend more time with the wines and um, continue to grow the brand and do that part since I'm not saying I'm not good at the other stuff, but I'd say I'm better at the wine stuff. 
<laughs> and that's okay to be really good at winemaking. A lot of people can't do that. So keep doing that well. We'll figure out the other stuff because I think that you're you're headed in the right track. I'm excited for the growth. More broadly, for people that may not have ever visited Oregon that are listening or want to go to Oregon, I know that you have a lot of knowledge there at the time that you've been, but also all the people that you work with. And I would love to hear what you think sets Oregon apart right now from other regions. There's always that comparison to Burgundy. And I try really hard not to, to be honest, because my husband has actually been the one that's like, no, it's not Burgundy, it's Oregon. And so I try to really, really challenge myself to know what's going on in that region. So what sets it apart? What makes it special? Well, anybody who's visited knows that Oregon, Western Oregon, I mean, Oregon's a pretty big state, lots of different stuff, but where we are in the valley, it's an incredibly beautiful place. Um, You know, whether the weather is cloudy, gloomy with fog and mist, and if, if that's the case, or if it's sunny and beautiful and you see all the volcanoes, it's an incredibly beautiful place. Uh, and I think that if you haven't visited, you will be all struck by that. I have that experience almost on a daily basis and I've been here for a while, but I still am amazed that that's the case. As far as the um, what's going on, if you're thinking about tourism, there's a lot of things you can do and include wine. If you just want to do wine, it's never been better to, to come and visit because... There's been a lot of infrastructure development for the tasting experiences. So mine is still about as raw as they come. And Oregon's still like that. You can still go to small places and taste with the producers or the owners or the vineyard owner or whatever. uh, And they allow for that kind of thing. Uh, And I recommend people get into the hills and check it out. Obviously, there's stuff going on in the towns, too. Um, Anyway, as a result of that, our restaurant scene has grown dramatically. Uh, For the most part in Oregon, our local governments have been really, really good about opening up outdoor alfresco seating that wasn't always like that. So like in downtown McMinnville, our little Third Street historic four or five blocks that is typically the commerce with restaurants, they're closing off the main road for driving Thursday through Sunday. And and they wanted to do it, but then they did it during the pandemic so people could have outdoor seating who didn't. And now they're just going to keep doing it sort of like in Boulder or Ithaca or um, like I lived in Burlington, Vermont for a summer where that's kind of the pedestrian zone. And so, you know, our our area is is geared up really well to have mild enough weather most of the year where like tastings are now being done kind of open air and some of the spaces have been designed to really take advantage of the beauty. Whereas back in the day, it was just like, here, come on over to this like, you know, little hole in my house and we'll try the wines. The wines are probably Um, still good at the time, I'm guessing. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, You know, there there was no such thing as like, you know, wine tourism. And so I think there's people who come out here, have producers in mind they want to taste because they can't get them in their markets and that's one thing the other thing is if you just want to go enjoy the beauty and have some wine and hang out with your people and be served and stuff there's now a lot of places where you can do that that are designed to be hospitality zones what i mean just like a hospitality center versus this is a wine tasting where we're going to meet the winemaker and learn about the wines versus like, here's your rosé would you like a charcuterie plate you know and both are great 
but I think you got to know what you want to do. Um, you know, Portland's a great city. Uh, if you go into wine country from there, it's 45 minutes to get to Newburgh, Dundee, which has like as much as you'd ever need. It's so much better than it was when I got here. And it's a testament to all the work of people like my former boss, Laurent Montelieu, who's been pushing, pushing this scene on a national stage, pushing prices so that people can access more Oregon wines and also like trying to promote exactly this kind of thing, which is Oregon needs to take itself as seriously as regions like California. Um, and, you know, high-end Pinot Noir-wise, we punch way above our weight on the shelf. The wines are fantastic. They're speaking for themselves. And I'm very excited about the white wine production coming up in Oregon. I love the sparklings I'm seeing. Like, it's it's very neat that you have the opportunity to still be a little bit innovative with what you want to make. I mean, that is the beauty of Oregon right now, too. Yeah, and if... Uh... If, you know, I always thought it'd be good to have an urban winery in Portland when I first moved out here. And, and, you know, about five years after I thought that would be a good idea, there's been a number of people who've done it and it's quite successful. Uh, and what we forget is that Portland is in between two amazing growing regions. Uh, the Willamette Valley all the way down is, you know, two hours worth of amazing growing region. The Columbia River Gorge, I think, is one of the most underappreciated wine growing regions we have in the country. I think it is poised to be a major thing. It has some of the most unique climate for vinifera and huge elevation. So I pick your, you know, variety and then find your, you know, elevation and they all have these fresh volcanic soils. It's I love it out there. That's where I'd be if I weren't down here, I think. But uh, but then, of course, you go further into Washington and the Horse Heaven Hills are very uh, close by and then Walla Walla is only another couple hours. So it's not that big a deal to have a truck and drive fruit three hours. It's you just build it into the business model. You know, the whole Woodenville wine scene basically operates this way because there's a lot of wine being made up there. They don't grow any fruit. <laughs> and they don't have their own winery, big like terraces. Nope. You just come and you drink yeah, their wine. <laughs> I mean, Walla Walla does. So if, if you wanted to do a Northwest thing, like the Willamette Valley could easily be a three-day adventure out of a nine or 10-day push where you could spend time in the gorge, Walla Walla uh you know the willamette valley and and see a lot of different things in in both wine growing styles uh you know and and have great cuisine all the way around and well that's exciting because i was going to ask you when you're not drinking oregon or violin or both what are you drinking these days? What else are you liking? Where do you get inspired the, the by? answer's almost always going to come back down to champagne calais i <laughs> You know, Why do you sound sad about that? That's fantastic. Uh, it's the one thing that uh, is absolutely without question in stock at our home. And we're very lucky. Uh, you know, as a wholesaler, I can do wholesale business. And we have some some really good books out here that give us access to grower champagne that, you know, even in other markets, which are much bigger, they don't have the same amount of access. So we're very, very lucky to have that access. And uh, once you start drinking the good stuff when it comes to champagne, it, it's awfully difficult to go the other direction. And it's true with a lot of things, but um, for us, especially that. So we, we drink more Blanc de Blanc than uh, Blanc de Noir or you know, certainly Brut Rosé. We're almost always in the, in the b2b camp this sounds great come people out. are gonna want to come over like they're gonna yeah. come over to see your champagne the the oh. wines which are inspiring for me uh on you know in terms of how i'm making wine um first and foremost would be uh 
Chenin Blanc from the Loire Valley. Um, I really like wines from Brise. There's a couple producers. I mean, Roman Guiberto in particular has been blowing my mind with uh, his barrel fermented Chenin Blanc. And those are the kind of wines. I, they're different varieties, but I think we can achieve more like that with Chardonnay, uh, that saltiness, brininess, a mineral sense, you know, and we have a different kind of fruit sense than I think Shannon gets, but it, sometimes it feels a little richer. But um, anyway, those kind of wines of nuance and detail that I know are produced in a similar kind of time frame as what I'm doing with Chardonnay. I spent a lot of time paying attention to those wines. Have you been to Italy, Champagne, Loire? Have you been to those places? Nope. Uh, I was recently in Burgundy, April of 18. Uh, first and only time I was there. I, I used to work with Diom Closure, the Bouchage, big French company. They're killing it on high-end wines. I could go on about Diom, but you know, I use those corks. They're technical closures, so they remove TCA. It's their amazing tools. Uh, fixed oxygen transfer. Great. Well, they're done in Perpignan uh, in southwest France. So they took me to the plant. I just stopped working for them. I had been their kind of contact for the northwest. That was one of my big things that I did more recently. So they took us there and then we drove up to Burgundy. So we went through Chateauneuf de Pop uh, and uh, hadn't been there. We stayed in Lyon, which was amazing. Uh, and then went up to Burgundy and spent the day tasting in Nuit Saint-Georges and uh, down in Santenay. So I finally got to see it, you know, it was only like two days and I should have extended the trip, but like, you know, I run my own business and it's hard enough. So, uh, but it was cool to finally see it. Those other regions, no, I have not been. We had planned uh, to go to Italy for our honeymoon, which would have been last year. Oh, man. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> oh, no. Those are kind of like indefinitely canceled plans that we really regret not being able to put on the calendar. Well, you just say you haven't been there yet. That's what you yeah. need to say. That's okay. I've been to Italy. Uh, I've been to France. Uh, it's been so long, and it was actually before I was wine centric. You know, so if if I had if I were going on a trip now, you can understand where my priorities would lie. I'm totally fascinated by those white wines in the Loire. I've tried some dry Vouvray's recently. I mean, I keep Domaine Huet around and try to put it in the cellar and hide it from myself. Incredible. That gives me such a great insight on where your interest is in terms of what you like drinking. Because again, like you were saying, a lot of your decisions are hands-on with your wines. You're able to express what you want in a wine that you're drinking. So I think it's important to always find out where people are inspired by because it does come out through the wine. Even if it's different varieties, I think that you can tell stylistically what you prefer. Yeah. And, you know, if we always have to kind of keep things in check. Uh, you know, house palate is very real. Doesn't mean that I don't like my wines, but I know that if I, if I taste them a lot, uh, you will have a preference. And so you have to make sure that you can keep things calibrated, you know, and you, obviously like I have opinions about local producers who I like to drink and mostly they're like people who I already correspond with, who I, you know, our, our kind of circle is with people that all have kind of stylistic similarity, integrity and stuff. And, you know, when we share ideas, it's with the people whose wines we trust. So it's not like, oh, I hate your wines. So how did you do that? You know, <laughs> well, but we've all worked in made wines where it's like wow that's a reminder of th something not to do 
Um, and that's an important, you know, thing to learn. I, I don't have the option of making any mistakes really in my production. So like when I started the brand, I already had a strong opinion about style and again, what I was going to do. Uh, but no, the evolution of how we feel about that stuff has everything to do with the people who introduce us to new wines and are passionate about them. You know, that that's what it's all about. I, I tell everyone to get to know their local wine merchant. I, I think wine is a very personal thing. And if you can get to know your local wine merchant on a personal level and you can really describe to them the wines that you like and don't like and they can kind of, you know, uh, push you accordingly on to new wines, uh, that that's really, really important. And I, I worry, like, if if you have people who trust you and you say, look, if you like these kind of wines, you'll like Will Chardonnay. They'll trust you and then they'll say, thank you, Kelly. And that's great. But if you get on to a online database and some people are saying this stuff's awesome and you try it and you hate it then you've just been duped you know and the, the local merchant knows they can't get away with that ask those questions tell people what you like and somebody in that shop will help you find more things that you like 100 yeah. billion percent and, and the best and the best merchants are all about education because they know that it's going to give them an opportunity to add value to their business and the customer relationship and over time they can introduce you to wines which it's important to also find value for people and you know when people just try to upcharge you you're like i don't want to do business with that person i want to go to the local wine merchant who's going to say no no Take two of these. You need those people in your life. I agree. And now I'm thinking, how can people find out more about Violin? If they are interested in trying your wines, what's the best way to reach you? And then also, what's next? Is there going to be a Violin sparkling down the line? Is that what I'm hearing? Is it, Do I hear a sparkling? No, oh, uh, uh, it would be insane to do that. I, I'm planning on growing the brand. I, I really was hoping to have my own winery and not continue sharing a space. I, I'm in a really great space that I like a lot with good people near the vineyard sites. It, it really clicks almost every box except for, you know, not being under my personal control and integrity. That, that's, that's kind of a big next step for me. So whether I can figure out a way to get some land and have a winery and that might be a two, three year plan kind of thing. In the short term, I need to get to revenue levels that are going to support the business moving forward. And growth phase is hard. So I'm still in that. The WV, Chard and Pinot are going to be the driving force for me in the marketplace. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, on the East Coast, it looks like North Carolina is going to continue to be my only market. Uh, Colorado has been a supporter for me since my first vintage. Uh, I'm hopeful and it sounds like I'm going to be moving into the California market uh, very soon, which is good for me. I don't make enough wine to justify doing business with more wholesalers because then I couldn't really give them any. Uh, obviously, I do business directly. I ship wine. I take care of all my stuff personally. If you email the website, like it is me packing the box. So it's funny. They're like, oh, can I just order offline as though like I'm not going to be the guy dealing with it. I'm the guy dealing with it. You know, it's okay. <laughs> I, I love to do it, but don't bypass me. You know, just I'm like, yeah, you want to send me a text on an order? Great. Do I have your address? No problem. You know, we'll get it going. And I actually think I do a pretty good job with customer service. So you do, you do great. You always tell me when it's when it's been shipped and when to expect it. And then you even sign the bottles, like I said. So Will, that's amazing. Yeah, that's good customer service. So uh, there's there's two companies I really recommend to your audience. Um, one is in Newburgh. It's called Valley Wine Merchant. The owner's name is Andrew Turner. He is owner-operator. 
Uh, and he basically curates the best selection of Oregon wines that I know of. Uh, and he has customers all over the country. However, uh, he also has a brick and mortar shop in Newburgh. So it's the place that I, I would say if anybody's going to come to wine country, make sure that's your first or in the first day stop. Talk to Andrew about what's good because he tastes everything. He only puts the good stuff up. Plus, he's got all the good champagne and also some French goodies for us producers who need some Chablis every now and again or whatever. And he has access to a lot of these small production wines. And that's really the niche is knowing and having personal relationships with producers. They have these kind of companies in other areas in California, but it's all about having access. You really have to have the goods and he does. So I highly recommend if people want wines because he can curate selections and then you're getting a mix of new organ wines from Andrew. And you could say, hey, I want some violin, but can you dose in some other stuff? And anyway, highly recommend him. And then the other one is called Avalon Wine. They're in Portland for the same reason. They have access. A lot of people you know, hold exclusively bottles for them from small production runs and stuff. So and again, they get better rates than I do on shipping. I hate to say that, but like I have to charge people, you know, what I have to charge and all those prices are going up. So, you know, I have an honest flat rate and that's how it is. And, you know, I have a discount on cases and mostly the discount covers the shipping. And so you're, you know, basically paying retail for the wines to a large extent. Uh, everybody does this differently and more and more people are discounting the heck out of shipping and stuff. Well, people that do a lot of it get a better deal and they have higher price wines. And so they just kind of do that. I'm, I've taken a more transparent route in doing business like that. So um, there's places that you can find the wines for, you know, again, a better overall deal. And because I really value both of their partnerships, I'm happy to say that. Wow. It's all good for me if they're also doing business, you know, because then you don't just uh, get violin, but you might find some other wines like it who, who you didn't know about either. So, Well, this is why you are a good person making good wine. I asked you where people can find out about your stuff. And you said that, but you also shouted out other businesses to support in the area. That is way too cool and there's nothing else you need to know about you as a person when you do something yeah. like that that's well, awesome I, look i troll the internet kelly and you can see all of these high-end wines from oregon that are on flash sites from two vintages back for less than retail you know and i know there's people out there who are deal searching the fewer markets you're in the more control you have over that and i actually value having more control over my brand that way at least in the short term and my scarcity is real i don't lie about what i have when it's sold out it's not on the website anymore that's about it right well keep being transparent and keep making some incredible wine for people that's accessible a lot of times there's like this unreachable price point where people don't feel like they can drink it for certain things but yours are yeah. like i'm going to drink this wine because it's awesome well and you know i i, I feel lucky uh obviously last year a lot of people had to change their game plans and I, I didn't quite know how to react on stuff. A lot of people bought violin wine from me online last year and it wasn't because I tried to instigate it. I, I think it was because they ran out of violin wine and they wanted to drink more. And it took like four or five years to build enough of an audience where people were like, oh, I, you know, I really want to buy some more violin, you know. And, uh, and that's a slow process, but it is a process. And, you know, it's not just flicking a switch and putting the right label on it or talking to the right whatever. Thank you for continuing to believe in what I'm doing. And uh, I'm still working hard on it.
Oh my gosh. Any, any day I can talk about violin is a good day. Thank you so much for being here, Will, for your time, your energy, your insights. Yeah, we'll, we'll see you when you get out here. You know how to be in touch. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Cheers. Kelly. Thanks for tuning in to the A Cork in the Road podcast, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, and interviewing people who are changing the wine world in the Southeast and beyond. You can find more about A Cork in the Road at at A Cork in the Road on Instagram, and make sure to check us out on www.acorkintheroad.com. See you soon, guys. Cheers.